I'm not complaining, though. I don't ever complain about rain in the desert. It, uh, maybe it's annoying and frustrating at times a little bit since we're so used to sunshine, but I do appreciate it when we get it. Say the speaker's not on now. They were on during the music. I don't know why they... Maybe it's the ears that aren't on. <laughs> Do you hear it? Yeah. Okay. I'll try to speak a little louder then. Or they could turn it up a little or something. I don't know. Thank you. If I try to speak too loud and push my voice, so then it gets strained and that doesn't work too well either. Well, last time we came down to chapter 20 of John... And I want to pick it up there again this evening and finish this book out of all that Christ did go through. We could go through the accounts of all four of the Gospels and add quite a bit of detail, but uh, the way John is telling it here gives us a pretty good overall view of what the prophecy said would happen to him uh, and then what did happen to him. And again we realize it was all for us. Uh, there was nothing there for him to gain, for sure. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of ridicule. Uh, and yet he humbly and meekly went through it all, didn't answer, didn't answer back, or tried to defend himself at least. He did answer some of Pilate's questions. But Psalm, I mean, it's not Psalm, Isaiah 53 indicates that he kept silent, and so does First Peter. Uh, so when he was accused, he did not try to defend himself. He was silent. But we already read in here when he was in a communication with Pilate, he did answer some of the questions. He avoided in some respects, uh, and he answered in, in a sense in parable, or laid the question back on Pilate or whatever. Uh, but he did not try to defend himself personally. That's the key. Uh, he was who he was. And he could state that. So it's not a contradiction between Psalms and Isaiah. When he spoke here in this context. But it was the personal accusation of being a sinner that he did not try to answer. He just accepted whatever they laid on him. His human nature was very much under control. Uh, we as humans tend to defend ourselves immediately. How long does it, if you accuse a human being of something, whether he did it or not, uh, there's an automatic selfish reaction to defend self. We, we like to look good. We like to look good in others' eyes, and we like to look good in our own eyes. Now, we're a mixed bag, of course, because in our uh, more honest moments, we will admit that we are not perfect, but we've, we spend a lot of time building this facade of how we think we would like to look and how we would like to think people perceive us. So we tailor that very carefully over time, and if anybody attacks that facade or that blind that we have built, uh, we try everything we can to cover it. Uh, people will lie like a sailor uh, to try to maintain that facade of righteousness. So Peter says, well, if you if you did it, and you're patient with it, uh, okay. If you didn't do it and take it patiently, then that is acceptable to God. In other words, if you did it and try to deny it, that's not acceptable to God. Or even if you're patient about it, uh, that isn't necessarily acceptable. What you did wasn't acceptable, and therefore if you're patient when you're accused of it, he doesn't endorse it. He's, the only thing he says that's acceptable, using that term, 
is if you didn't do it and get accused of it, and you don't defend yourself, and you're patient and you take it, okay, that's the way you feel. You can think what you want to think, whatever. <clears throat> but we take it patiently. He says, now that is acceptable. Because aren't you going, in a sense, above and beyond? If you did do it and you're saying, yeah, and you're patient with that and you take it, that's just average. Well, it's not. that's above average, actually, in one sense, because usually we try to deny it. But uh, if we take it patiently and don't attack back or condemn them or accuse them in turn, then God says that is acceptable. So we all work with it. We all work with our facade, our little uh, mirror image of what we'd like to be or what we'd like people to think of us. You know, the, the image you have of yourself doesn't work too well for other people. Do we realize that? Everybody that knows you or meets you will have a different opinion of you than you have. Realize that? If you see a car accident uh, and ten other people see it and they write down what they saw, there will be ten different opinions and none of them will be the same of exactly what happened in that car accident. They proved it time after time by interviewing witnesses. And then the cop just decides for himself what happened there. He may talk to a witness or two, but he decides and he writes the ticket wherever he wants to write the ticket. <clears throat> so he doesn't see it like you did. He didn't see it like the other driver did. He just looks at the damage and says, well, I think I'll write the ticket to you. <laughs> Measures the tracks or whatever. But he forms his own opinion. And the same is true of you. You have your idea of what you're like, but everybody else has a different idea. They don't think of you like you think of you. It's like me speaking right now. I'm used to hearing my voice coming out the front of my face, and my ears are back here on the side, and my voice sounds a certain way to me. Okay? Now, when I hear it on tape, it sounds totally different to me than it does when I'm listening to me. <clears throat> I've never liked the sound of my voice on a tape. I won't listen to my own sermons a lot of times. I don't can't stand to hear myself. Because it sounds totally different than what I'm used to hearing with my own ears. And I don't know how you hear it, but that's your problem. But let's, let's understand uh, that God is the judge. And He has to be the judge. Because every one of us would have a different opinion. Well, look at it with politicians. They all got a different opinion of what's right and what's wrong. And then they, we vote on it, maybe, or they vote on it. And uh, a lot of times it's... Uh, well, in the Supreme Court, the, the votes are more often five to four than anything else. So five think it's this way, and four think it's that way. Would you rather have your judgment come from men or from God? When that was put before David, he says, I'll accept your judgment. <laughs> I don't want the people to judge me. So we need to let God judge us all. Be very careful. How did I get off on that? Anyway, let's go to verse chapter 20. The first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark. Now there's some doctrines in here, uh, or some scriptures that can be used to prove doctrine. There are a certain amount of people in God's church at this point, or at least they say they're in God's church, who believe the day starts when the sun comes up at dawn. And they seriously think that's when the day begins. Despite the first chapter of Genesis saying it was morning and the evening 
or evening in the morning, I'm sorry, with the first day. Evening comes at the beginning of the day. But when they see the sun come, they think, well, that's when the day starts. Very clear in Leviticus 23 that you start atonement in the evening. That's when the day starts. So it's in Genesis 1, it's in Leviticus 23, and here it's in John 20. It isn't the subject, but it was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. And the sun hadn't come up yet. It was still dark. So therefore, if it was already the first day of the week and the sun hadn't come up, then it had been the first day of the week since sundown the evening previous. It didn't change at sunrise. It was already the first day of the week and still dark. So there are different scriptures you can put together on things like this. That's just a sidelight I thought I'd throw in there as a proof scripture if you want to uh, categorize it with Genesis 1 and Leviticus 23 and other places of when a day starts and ends. So this was Mary Magdalene coming. And uh, she's mentioned in this chapter as part of this story. Uh, you can read commentaries. You can read different scholars. And you can even find some really wigged out people who think that uh, Christ married Mary Magdalene and had a bunch of kids by her and lived to 104, 130, depending on who you talk to, and had a bunch of children. And... Uh, then these modern people think that they're kin to him, direct bloodline to Christ. They're called Merovingians. That's a, it's a belief that some secret societies carry. It's a belief that a lot of Mormons carry. And that's one of the reasons they like to trace their lineage back, because they like to prove that their blood relationship to Christ. Uh, he had no children. So, that should be so very, very obvious. He isn't married. He never did marry. And he wouldn't commit fornication. That would have been a sin. So, he didn't have any children. And I find in this book, didn't we just read some chapters about how he died on the stake at age 33 and a half? He didn't live to 104 or 130 years old. He was killed. And you can go back to Psalm 16:10, I think it is, where it says his soul, his body would not see corruption, and that he would live. And then Psalm 22 and 23 and 53 show that he died. So all those Old Testament prophecies told of his coming and of his death. And if that is not true, and that's not what happened, then God is a liar and His Word isn't any good. And those people don't believe in the Bible being truly the Word of God. Now, how do you establish religion and have a correct religion if you do not have one authority that everybody looks to? Some people like to look to Copper Scrolls. Some like to look at the Bible. Some like to look at the Catholic Bible. Some the Lutheran Bible. Some whatever authority they come up with. And some of them use a lot of different authorities that contradict. I ask you this. If you created human beings yourself, if you had been the one to do it, would you have rules and regulations for them? Would you have instruction for them? Would you want them to all believe the truth as opposed to all their different opinions they might come up with? Of course you would. If somebody's a master chef and they want to teach other people how to cook, do they tell them, well, just go out and do whatever you want? No, they write very detailed books with all kinds of recipes to show them how they think they ought to cook any particular dish. Now, the chefs may disagree because none of them's God. 
But if God be God, and He was going to tell you how to live, He's got to give you a guide. He's got to give you something that you can depend on. We read in John seventeen seventeen the other night, Thy word is truth. That we are to live by every word of God as written in this book. So this is the only authority that God gave for us to use. Now, there's a book of Jasher, there's a book of Enoch. Uh, those are both mentioned in Scripture as being there, but they are not part of this book. They may add detail, they may add some information that's worthwhile historically or whatever, but they're not on the level of Scripture. That's why when Frank Melfi said, you have to learn to think above Scripture, that stopped my ears. I was done listening to that man. I never listened to another word he said. And I'd been in contact with him uh, in Africa and here quite a bit. And he believed the Hebrew calendar was wrong, okay? And he wrote probably a pile of papers that tall about the calendar. <clears throat> and then when I began to, he and I sat down to discuss the calendar and how it ought to be kept in the church. And he says, well, we're going to have to make some decisions. That was the first alarm bell that went off in my mind. Why do we need to make decisions about how we structure the calendar? The Jew Hillel had done that back in 325, close to that, about how he thought the calendar ought to be. No. It's real simple. It's right here in the book. Genesis 1, or 2, Genesis 1.14 it is, where it says you use the sun and the moon for times and seasons and holy days. Well, to do times and seasons, you have to know what time of year, what season, uh, and the seasons come and go, but they're dictated by the moon and the sun. The days get longer and the days get shorter because there's uh, four times of the year that one... One time's the longest day of the year, one time's the shortest. Uh, one time in the spring and one time in the fall, they're equal. So that gives you the four seasons right there when there's a change in the direction. So you have your seasons dictated by the equinox or the solstice four times a year. That's real simple. And then to do the holy days, what do you have to have? You've got to know what month it is and what day of the month. That's all. Because it says that this holy day will be kept on the 14th day of the first month. So all you've got to do is know when the first day is of the month and count to 14 and you know when Passover is. Real simple. And you don't have to figure out whether it falls on Friday or not because you don't want to have two Sabbaths in a row, for crying out loud, that wouldn't be good, would it? Just human reasoning. It means nothing. It means paganism and you keep the calendar wrong. All you need to do, and I tried to get this across to Frank, all you need to know is when the spring equinox is, that's when the season changes. And you take the first new moon after the equinox, because you have to start months with a new moon. That's very clear in Scripture. So the first new moon after the spring equinox begins the first month. Count to 14 and you got Passover. Go two more new moons. You're in the third month. And, well, you don't, you don't use that for Pentecost. You count 50 from the Sabbath during the Passover time. But for the fall, it's the seventh new moon, first day is Feast of Trumpets. It's real simple. People get it all balled up. They get confused because they don't understand three simple things. It's just like that clock on the wall. 
That's, it's that simple. How do I know when it's 12 o'clock? Well, the hour hand reaches 12. And some may might say, well, it's 12 o'clock. The hour hand's on 12. Somebody else says, no, it can't be 12 till the minute hand gets there. Oh, okay, now we got the hour hand and the minute hand on 12. Now it's 12 o'clock. No, it's not. You got another signal. You got a second hand there. So you got the first one, the second one. Then when the second hand reaches 12, all three signals have been met and it's 12 o'clock. And starting the year is exactly the same process. You only need three things. Equinox is the same as the hour hand. Uh, new moon the same as the minute hand. The days are like the second hand as they come around. All you got to do is count them. It's that simple. God put it in the heavens. He says, people say, well, there's no calendar in the Bible. That's right. I agree. It's in the heavens. That's where he put it. That's where the moon is. And he said, that's what you use. Isn't that simple? I couldn't get Frank to see that. Because, you know what? It could be written on one page. And he knew that you could not explain anything properly unless there were 500 pages of it. I'm being a little sarcastic. Or maybe dripping with it, for that matter. But it's very, very simple. But you start reading all the stuff that men have written, and it gets confusing. Because they all got different opinions. Right? Anyway, back to Mary Magdalene. She was there. It was still dark, but it was the first day of the week. Uh, and she sees the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That would be John, the one that wrote this book. He uses that quite a bit uh, to refer to himself. And says to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. She was very agitated, very upset. Uh, she was very concerned for him. Uh, she cared a lot about him. Most people would not get out of bed at four or five o'clock in the morning and go to a sepulcher unless they cared for somebody that was interred there. I mean, I'll get up fairly early for a cup of coffee sometimes, but not very often when I go out to a to a grave before it was daylight to visit it. I do sometimes at midnight, but I don't think I would get up early just to go sit by a grave. But Mary Magdalene did. She cared an awful lot for him. Now, you can read different scholars' stories and their imaginations, and they think that there was a relationship, a wrong one, between Jesus and Mary. Uh, because, as you'll see here, she wept as we get on down. She was very upset. And she didn't even recognize his voice at first. Now, she knew him very well. And she knew his voice. But at the same time, she was so overwrought, so upset, and did not expect him to be alive because she'd seen him die on the stake and all his blood pour out when a spear was rammed into his side. So she was not expecting to see him. Or hear him. And in her emotional state, she didn't even recognize him when he talked. We'll get to that here in a minute. So I got into this a little prematurely, I guess. But the point I want to make is this. I suspect that Mary Magdalene loved him very deeply. I suspect she would have married him in a moment. The depth of her feeling is shown here in that she was out there before daylight. So, sure she loved him. The disciples loved him. John laid on his chest. He loved him. 
He was he was a man's man and a woman's man, let's face it. And I think he probably had some deep feelings for Mary. I suspect he did. Why do I say that? Because he's tempted, or was, it says, in every point like as we are. So, when he saw a beautiful woman, he was tempted to look too long. But he didn't. When he met a woman that he liked and spent time with, it was easy, or could have been so easy, for him to fall in love with her and want to marry her. That is a normal human desire. Okay? And yet he had instruction from his father that he was not to marry. You're to spend 33 and a half years there. You're not to marry. You are a type of the church that is going, you're going to marry the church someday. And we can't afford to have people down there claiming that they've got, that they're God because they have a direct blood lineage to you. So people have dreamed that up over the years and decided that they are kin to Christ. No, that couldn't have been. Uh, it just couldn't have been. But was he very possibly very much in love with her? I don't know. But it could have been. Because he had to be tempted in all points, like as we are, and not do what he and his father had decided he should not do. So it didn't matter how she felt. didn't matter how he felt. So these scholars and commentators, with the big books they write, have come up with these theories about how they were married or had children or whatever. No, wasn't that way. But was the temptation there? Maybe not with Mary Magdalene. We don't know everybody. I mean, everybody that he knew is not mentioned in this book, is it? By any means. There could have been another woman there that he was very attracted to. And he might have wanted to marry. But he knew he could not give in to that temptation because it didn't fit the plan. Therefore, he didn't. So, whether it's Mary Magdalene or somewhere else, I know that he was tempted in all points, like as we are. So, he had to have been tempted in that area the same way that he was tempted in every other area of life. Any temptation, any sin, any disobedience to any of God's rules, he wanted to break. Do we understand that? I've had people tell me, no, he wasn't tempted like we are. Well, how can he be our Savior then? He's my Savior. Because anything I ever wanted to do, he wanted to do, and he didn't do it. You and I have given in at times to things we wanted to do that weren't right. In action or in deed or in word or in thought. But he never gave in. How can he be your Savior if he wasn't tempted as much as you are? You can say... We could say, you're going to send me the lake of fire? I was tempted more than you were. Then what could he say? He said, well, I I actually only really had a mild temptation there. I didn't really want to do it, so it, it didn't matter. You know, there's some things I just don't have a temptation to do. Smoke a cigarette. I have no temptation whatsoever. I have a memory of coughing and gasping nearly to death on the four or five times I tried it in life. But I'm not tempted on that at all. But you know, some people really are. Some people just got to have another cigarette. And they can't stand it till they get one. They begin to shake. Or alcohol or whatever it might be that is their temptation. 
So Christ had to have been tempted in every way. Anything that was around, he had to have had a desire, an inclination to do. And it had to be as strong or stronger than any of ours. You have alcoholics, uh, sex addicts, uh, cigarette ass addicts, money addicts. You could be addicted to all kinds of things. And Christ had the temptation to do all those things just as much, and I suspect more, than any human being who had any of those addictions or desires. The temptation was there. He wanted to get married as much as anybody has ever wanted to get married. But there were certain guidelines. Paul gave us some. You know, Christ might have been tempted to marry somebody that wasn't a disciple or a member of the church. Duh. It wasn't a church. <laughs> but Paul said, don't touch the unclean thing. Don't marry outside the church. He made it very, very clear. We are not to do that. It's in Scripture. Part of the Word of God. Well, Christ must have been tempted to do that by whoever it was. So, if we're tempted to do it, He had to be tempted to do it. I, I dwell on this because there's some people who just think He couldn't have had temptations. Well, how could He be our Savior? And not only that, how can I go to Him and ask Him to help me overcome this, that, or the other thing if He doesn't understand what I'm talking about? He was attempted in all points like as we are. And therefore, anything you take to Him, no matter what it is, He's been there. He knows what it's like. I think it's later in Psalm 102 or 103, it says, He understands our frame, that we are dust. He had to come here in order to fully, totally grasp what it's like to be human. Now, when He and His Father designed human nature, they knew what it would do. They knew. Adam and Eve would give in to Satan just like that. So they knew what it was that they were creating. And yet, God had to even shake his head in a way when it got as violent and as nasty as it did in the days of Noah. Because between the human nature that they had given us, and the nature of Satan who influences us, it had gotten so bad that God said, I wish I hadn't done this. In other words, he was not fully, completely grasping exactly how bad we can get. So he said, I repent me that I made him. He says it almost with a that attitude, I repent that I made him, I'm going to wipe him out. I, this, this is beyond what I thought. But Christ came, and he was one of us. So everything that he experienced on this earth was on the same level that you and I do and have, and that everybody has. So he remembers that we're dust. He understands our frame. David wrote that, or whoever was writing that particular psalm. He had to come here and experience it, and David even wrote it ahead of time before Christ came here. But he, was, he knew that Christ was going to come, and he knew that he was going to have to go through what you and I go through. So he wrote that, 
and God inspired it to be written, whether David fully understood it or not is another matter. Sometimes the prophets wrote things that didn't come from them, they came directly from God, and they were just writing it down. So David may not have had as clear a picture as we might think, because God inspired his thoughts. But get, a, get this out of what I'm saying. When you go to our high priest in the heavens, you're going to someone who has been there, done that. And there's nothing you can tell him, nothing you can bring before him that he hasn't heard and seen before. Over and over and over. You don't have any particular sin that's worse than anybody else's. Now some people think they do. Maybe they've been into some pretty bad things. Homosexuality, prostitution, you name it. Terrible drug habits. And they have very, very low opinions of themselves and they have trouble having the confidence to even operate in society because of what they've been through and the opinion that has left them of themselves. But it doesn't matter what we've been or what we've done. I've known people, I've known women that have almost gone insane over having had an abortion. Even miscarriages, but an abortion even more so, because as they realized that they had caused a child to be killed and murdered, it just almost destroys their emotional makeup and their mind. Not everyone. Some are affected more than others. But nevertheless, you can take that before Christ, He's the one, he and his father, who designed all the laws for us, and murder was one of them, whether it's a child or an old person, still murder. And it can be forgiven. And we can move forward toward eternal life. Rahab's a good example. She was just a common prostitute. And yet she helped God's spies, and she was preserved. Not only was she preserved, she came into Israel... She became part of Israel, grafted into Israel, and grafted into what? The kingdom of God. She's listed among the faithful in Hebrews 11 as one who will be a first fruit. So it doesn't make any difference. You think your sins are worse than somebody else's? No. And they're no worse than any temptation that Christ himself suffered or was tempted to do. So he fully understands. And you know what else? His mercy endures forever. He is always forgiving, always loving, always kind. Now he can get angry and he can wipe out nations of people. But you know what? He does it in love. What about the seven last plagues? They're going to kill nearly everybody that's left on the earth, except for apparently a hundred million, as Daniel says. Just wipe them out in terrible, horrible death. That's tough love, but it's love. Because they have to have been preached to for three and a half years, accompanied by plagues like Egypt had, and fire coming out of the mouth of the two preachers and devouring anybody who tried to stand against them or kill them. They're going to have seen and heard all of this on TV worldwide for three and a half years. And they still will not come away from the beast and false prophet and worship God. Won't do it. Too stubborn. Too selfish. Too married to a government handout because of the chip in their forehead or their hand and they're not about to serve God because the beast gives them a weekly check. It's already happening in America to some degree. So God is going to just wipe them all out. A thousand years later, they're going to come to life as physical human beings 
and look around at a whole new world and be told, you know what? You know where the beast and the false prophet are now? You know where that little digital chip is now? It's all gone. They got burned up over here and the chip's gone and now here's some seed, go plant them and worship the God of heaven and earth who survived all of this. And then his love will become evidenced. He killed them so that they might be humbled and ready to bow their knees and change their attitude. All the seven last plagues are is an attitude adjustment hour. That's all it is. So when you come up, you got a different attitude. All done in love. Sounds like pretty tough love, but it's love. Anyway, she didn't know where they'd laid him. Peter therefore went and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple, John, outran Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. <clears throat> A little bit afraid, perhaps quite respectful. Uh, don't know all the thoughts that were going through his mind, but Simon Peter, you know, he grabs a sword and whacks at the high priest's servant. So he was a little more, in that sense, they've used the word impetuous, or prone to action more than John was here. So Peter came following and went into the sepulcher and sees the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went and also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Believed what? That there had been a resurrection. Now, Christ set an incredible example there that I don't think anybody but him would think of. If you were dead, laying there, all wrapped up, like we read last night. That cloth went round and round and round him. And then his head was covered. And somehow, when he was resurrected, he got out of that. Now, his arms were bound by his sides. So, an angel, I assume, must have unwrapped him. Or God just gave him sufficient power to break all that cloth, which I doubt. But if I woke up in a sepulcher or a coffin, I think I'd be terrified. I would want out of there now. Like that. No, he took his time. He folded all the grave clothes up, folded the napkin that had been over his head up separately and laid it in different places. Very organized. Took care of everything in a decent, organized manner. What an, what an incredible emotional control and maturity he had. And a sense of order. Anyway, uh, verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That's Psalm 16, verse 10. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. So, they got there. He was gone. Wasn't anything to... Nobody to talk to, nothing to see. He went home. But Mary had a different attitude. She stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. She knew he wasn't there, but she looked again. She just she was beside herself. So her actions here do indicate to me she had some very very deep feelings for him. Why not? He was young, he was strong, he was smart, he was God on earth. Um, there was, he was as lovable as you can get. So, she probably did love him that way. And sees two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They're probably the two angels that unwrapped him when he came to life. And they say to her, Woman, why weep you? 
She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She was worried. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was him. She didn't know because it was still dark. He was there. She might have seen a shadow uh, or perception of someone there, but she couldn't see him. At least not still at this point. It wasn't sun up, and it was still the first day of the week. But she couldn't see him well enough to know who it was. And she wasn't expecting him to be standing there anyway. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have borne him away from here, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Then she recognized his voice and knew he was alive. <clears throat> and he said to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, and say to them, I ascend to my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Now in the emotional state she was in, when she recognized who it was, and said, Master, her first inclination would have probably been to give him a big hug, and, and show affection and caring. But he said, don't touch me. Touch me not. I've got to go to the Father, and I can't be touched by a human being because I've been resurrected, and I'm not a human being anymore. So you can't touch me as a human. <clears throat> so he said, don't touch me. I haven't ascended to my Father and been approved yet. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going to be accepted of and approved by the Father. But he had hung around there for a little while at least to make contact with her. The disciples had already gone, Peter and John. They'd gone home. And he did not show himself to them, but he showed himself to her. So does that indicate there might have been a special relationship there that they did not do anything about because he had been sent here not to marry, but he did stick around till the others left. You'd think he'd have appeared to Peter and John, wouldn't you? His leading disciples and apostles. No, just to marry. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And then the same day, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, toward the end of the day it was drawing toward dark, and they didn't want to be out because the Jews were there to kill them, and nighttime's a scary time when you got enemies. So they had gone inside. Uh, but it was still before sundown, still light, first day of the week. Uh, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Now he's appearing to the disciples. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side, in case they didn't believe. He had holes in his the scars from his uh, injuries. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Eternal, or the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be to you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. So he had gone to the Father, been approved as having been perfect and having fulfilled his mission here on the earth, restored to life eternal. And now he's going to send them out to do a work. And he had set the example by doing a perfect work and he wanted them to do a good work as well. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So even before Acts 2, 
the disciples themselves, or the ones to be apostles, had received the Holy Spirit ahead of time, and the rest had to wait until Pentecost. So he gave them his Spirit. And then he said something quite astounding in a way. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. That's a lot of power. He gave those apostles the authority to either remove someone's sin or retain it. Now, God is the one who forgives sins through Christ's sacrifice. But he extended that power in a limited way. They didn't have power to give or take salvation. But they had the right to say, your sin is here. You are still responsible for it. Witness 1 Corinthians 5. There the man was committing incest, and it was still going on. And if the man had come to Paul and said, well, I'm not doing that anymore, I just quit three minutes ago. And Paul might have said, no, I I think we better be sure by the fruits that you've overcome that, and you're not going to be, I'm putting you out of the church, And God is going to honor that. And you're staying out until I let you back in. And you're not part of the church anymore. Now people are trying to get around that now. Since the church is broken up, they don't think the ministry has that power, but they do. God gave it. What did Paul say back here in 1 Corinthians They knew about this man's sin, and he knew it was affecting the church. Said in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's telling these people, I put this man out of the church. I have turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, hoping he will repent and can still be a part of the kingdom of God once the repentance is complete. And then the man, which is somewhat unusual, must have been somewhat converted and did repent. He gave up the sin. Well, by then, these people had put him out of their mind and emotions and looked down upon him because of the sin that they had approved of before. And they weren't about to let him back in the church. They didn't have the power to put him out or to let him back in anyway. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, the man's repented, Now you let him back in and love him as a brother. He had to get the guy straightened out and he had to get them straightened out both. Let's tie that with Matthew 18. People say here that... Well, let's go back and read it. Verse 15. Moreover... If your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We're instructed here, if somebody sins against us, not to tell anybody. Except the person who did it. How much do we live by every word of God? Or do we tell our best friend? Or who we think is our best friend? or our worst enemy, or whoever. No. You go to him and him alone. Nobody else. That's the first part of this that people don't get. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. 
That's the point. Maybe they did sin against you. Maybe they offended greatly with whatever they said or did. But you're not supposed to go talk to anybody about it. You're supposed to go talk to them about it and gain your brother or sister so that your relationship is restored. And you can be friends and love each other and treat each other nicely, civilly, and in love as Christians. That's the whole point of going to them. Now, most people don't get this at all. They take this verse and they use it as a club. You sinned against me and I'm coming to you and you better repent or I'm going to bring two or three witnesses and we're going to nail your hide to the wall. And if you still won't repent, we'll take it to the church. And they use it in anger as a club to try to win a victory over the one who perpetrated the offense. No. The whole purpose here is to work the love of God. It's what the purpose is. You were to go not to someone else, which makes the problem worse because more people know it. You're just to go to them alone and you are to try with humility and meekness to be a peacemaker Admit whatever you might have done was wrong and ask for their forgiveness or tell them, you sinned against me, here's what you did. I don't want to hear your justification. I don't want to hear your excuse. This is how I feel you treated me. (coughs) And it has hurt me. And I want to resolve this so we can love each other. Don't have to become bosom buddies. We don't, God doesn't tell us that with anybody. John was Jesus, bosom buddy. He's the one that leaned on his chest. The others were there. He loved them. He got along well with them. But there was one there that he had a special relationship with. Very clear in the scripture. Just by dint of personality. (coughs) He liked him better. It's not wrong. It's not wrong for us to like some people better than others. Christ did. Some people we can just barely tolerate. But we still need to treat them as brothers and love them as much as we love ourselves is our goal and our purpose. So people use this as a weapon. They don't use it as a way to resolve a problem. (coughs) If you'll hear you, you've gained your brother. You're still brothers. But if it was truly an offense, a sin against you, a trespass, If he doesn't listen, then you take with you one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Sometimes two people have trouble resolving an issue. So they need to get two or three witnesses. Everything had to be done with two or three witnesses to establish the situation and what really had happened and who needs to forgive, who needs to repent, who needs to apologize. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen man and a publican. Not in the church. Unclean. Heathen and publican. Now there are people who miss use and abuse, verse 18, I mean verse uh, 17 as well. They say you're supposed to get the whole congregation together and get these people up on the stage and tell it to the whole church. No, that's not the way God set it up. Back here we read that he told his disciples to become apostles. If you retain something, it's retained. If you forgive it and remove it, it's removed. He gave them that kind of authority. Now, how can I prove that? Because that doesn't sit well with you, I know. Humans don't like to hear such a thing. Then, go to Deuteronomy 19. Did they take it before all Israel? 
Deuteronomy 19, <coughs> verse 15. Essentially the same thing as Matthew 18. <coughs> One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sins. You can't go up one-on-one and accuse somebody of a sin and be judged right. Because it's just a he said, she said deal. Now you can go to somebody else and you can tell them all about this person, what they've done to you, and how evil they've been, and how they've offended you, and all this blah, blah, blah. But it's all worth nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing because it causes people who hear it to think evil of the person whom you're accusing. You have no right to do that. You can't have somebody that you you saw them sin or you thought you saw them sin. And you can't run to somebody else or run to the minister and have him punish them or put them out of the church or whatever because you say you saw them sin. It's not allowed. 1 Corinthians 5, everybody knew it. Everybody saw it. It was common. They were even bragging about it because they were from that kind of a background and, hey, all those sex sins were just fun. But Paul knew that they all had common knowledge of it. It wasn't one person accusing another. So, in the New Testament, Christ changed it a little bit. He said, don't take it to anybody else. Just go to the person who did it and try to gain your brother. Try to win them over. Don't go to talk to anybody else. He says that. Just them. And if you can't resolve it, then take two or three witnesses. Keep it small. You still don't tell a hundred people. Still don't tell five people. You're trying to fix something, not punish somebody. It's not a weapon. So two or three witnesses can establish a matter. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the eternal, before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, ask questions, examine it, And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do to him as he had thought to have done to his brother. So shall you put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. So, it went before God, through the priests, and the judges. And that's what Matthew 18 is simply repeating in a little bit different context. You don't take it to the whole church. You take it to the person. You don't tell anybody else. And you resolve it between you. If you can't resolve it between you, as converted Christians and peacemakers, which you're told to be, then you get two or three people to witness and you go do it again. Now, if that doesn't work, then you take it to the ministry and they're to look in it because they are the priests and the judges in this day. And they will look into it and decide who is right and who is wrong and render a decision. Now, that's what Christ was telling the disciples back here in John 20. I'm giving you the power that the priests and the judges used to have. And you are to make decisions even on whether somebody's in the church or not. And then Paul did that. 
in 1 Corinthians 5. In other places I could go to, but I won't forsake a time, and I don't have them at the tip of my tongue, but several places people were disfellowshipped, put out of the church, and God honored it. And then when the ministry put them back in the church, God honored that. And that's all he's saying here, is I'm giving you the power to determine whether somebody should be in or out, whether whether the sin that they committed should be removed, forgotten about, or whether it still needs some work done on it, so you retain it until it is truly repented of and forgiven. And then that's the administration that they used later on. Well, some people try to remove the power of the ministry and say, oh, you just take it to the church, and then the whole church votes on it. There is not one place, and I defy you to find one, there is not one place here where a democratic solution was used to make a decision in God's Word. There is never a vote of the congregation of Israel. There's never a vote of the church in any example ever given. God, as Herbert Armstrong clearly came to see, works from the top down. And whether we like it or not, that is God's way. And they have that power. And if you think you can get around it, God was there as the witness too in Deuteronomy. But he conferred the authority to make the decision on those who looked into it, the priests and judges. So, we need to fear, to hear and fear sometimes. When we think we can go off and self-righteously do our own thing, God's watching. God knows. Well, I'm out of time by over 15 minutes, or about 15 minutes. I was going to finish this tonight, but there are some doctrinal issues here that, since we're right here, I thought it might as well handle. So we'll stop there and pick it up again tomorrow night. Thank you for coming out in the rain. It's always a pleasure to be here with you.